morning, Missio Church. My name is Nate Maxfield. For those of you who don't know me, I serve as a deacon here and a pastoral assistant. And usually, you're probably used to seeing me with a guitar, but today, it is my privilege and honor to be able to open the Word of God with you as we investigate its riches together. It's so nice to be here with you this morning. We are continuing our series through Mark. We've been studying Mark for quite some time now. And for the last five weeks, we've been looking at Jesus's time in the temple at Jerusalem. And he's really caused quite a ruckus, right? Uh, in the things that he said and in the things that he's done. And he's earned the admiration of the general public, uh, but he's also... Uh, He's really stoked the contempt of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, and they see him as a threat, but they also see that the people seem to be in favor of Jesus. And so uh, they're not quite sure what to do because they want to destroy him, but they fear backlash from the people. And so they decide, well, here's the deal. If we can trap him in his words, we can make a fool out of him in front of the people and it will dismantle the influence that he has. And then at that point, we can do whatever we want uh, with him without fear of backlash from the people. But you know, in the end, if you try to outsmart the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it's not going to go well with you. And we read that with each answer to their trap questions, more and more people marveled at Jesus. Finally, last week, after we saw him answer a scribe's question about the greatest commandment, we see Jesus tell this particular scribe that he wasn't far off from the kingdom of God. And this statement sends a hush over the crowd that had gathered. Who can know the heart and mind of a man? Who could say who was close to or who was far from the kingdom of God? Who set that threshold? Apparently, Jesus does. And we read that after that, nobody dared to ask him any more questions. But one question, for sure, burned on the hearts and minds of the people that had gathered there, and it was this. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? And this is where we come to our text today. The plot has thickened. The inevitable question hangs heavy in the air. And now the ball is in Jesus' court. They're not asking him questions, so he's not answering in response to interrogation, but he's going to answer now on his own terms. And he chooses to answer this question with another question. One commentator put it this way. He said, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. What's the question of the day? Well, let's find out. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 44. Mark chapter 12, 35 through 44. If you're reading along in a pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 849. We'll also put it up here on the screen for you. Mark 12, 35 through 44. This is the word of God. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we're so grateful that you gave it to us. And God, if we aren't, we pray you'd get us there because we need it. We need your word. God, it says in your word that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And we also read that all scripture is breathed out by you, including this passage in Mark. And so God, there's something in it that we need to learn today. And we ask God that by your spirit, you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand it. Let it be food for us. Nourish us, God, with your word. Sustain us with your word. Bring health, God, to our hearts and to our minds. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The question of the day. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Well, at face value, this might seem like a fairly obscure question to ask, right? Like, Jesus, if you're going to choose to lay the smack down and reveal your identity to these people, why this question? But this question is actually spot on, as we'll see today. And no wonder, I mean, it's Jesus. He kind of knows what he's doing, right? (laughs) Uh, But as we look at it, we see that the differentiation that he's trying to make here between son of David and Lord It matters a great deal because it brings with it an immense clarity when it comes to the true identity of who Jesus is. The meaning might be lost to some of us here reading it in the 21st century, but the meaning of it was not at all lost on his listeners. Jesus was certainly speaking in a way that the people gathered in the temple would have understood. Uh, And so I wanna unpack that today, kind of dissect it, investigate it, and see what we can learn from it. So... For starters, Jesus is here talking to them about the Christ. Now, we always hear the Christ mentioned with Jesus' name, right? But we understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not like referring to me as the Maxfield, right? Christ is actually a title that's used in conjunction with his name. And this title uh, means God's anointed one. It means God's chosen one. It means the Messiah. 
And so when he's referred to as Jesus Christ, it really means Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, God's chosen one. Jesus, the Messiah. And as he's referring to the Christ, the people there, how they would have pictured this, what they would have thought of when he uses the title Christ, uh, they likely associated this title with the promise that God made to David that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You might be familiar with the Davidic covenant. Uh, and we see that God promises through that covenant that from David's offspring, he would raise up a king who would forever secure the kingdom. God promised never to remove his steadfast love from David's line and they would enjoy peace and security forever. But of course, if we keep reading through the Old Testament, right, we see that the sons of David really did not live up to this ideal, did they? The history of the line of David is really more one of corruption and idolatry and just blatant sin and then hit repeat. Just a repeating cycle of this. And so eventually God sends them into exile, right? But God's promise never failed to be true. Their going into exile had no effect on the promise of God. He promised to never remove his steadfast love for them. And so therefore, the promise that he made to David then really becomes a promise about restoration. Everything at this part had fallen apart. But if God is faithful to his word, there's going to be restoration. And so those who believed God's promise truly yearned for this restoration to take place and they eagerly awaited this descendant of David, this Messiah. Then you fast forward to the time of our text. The people have a hunch that the Messiah they've been hoping for was standing right in front of them. It's clear from Mark's narrative that the people that were gathered for Jesus' teaching had a hunch that he was associated with the Christ. All we need to do is look back a chapter at the triumphal entry when he came into the city and see the words that they greeted him with. Listen to what they said. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Their words indicate that they were associating Jesus with the office of the Christ, with the office of the Messiah. Perhaps he would be the one to come and to restore Israel. And so when Jesus asks them this question of the day, what is it? Is it son of David or is it Lord? When he asks them this question about the Christ, there is a general understanding. He's asking in reference to himself regardless of whether or not they believed that he was the Christ. And he asks them, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Well, that's easy, right? I mean, he's the descendant of David. That's why they would say that he's the son of David, right? Nobody there would have had a qualm with him being referred to as the son of David. So why is he asking this? Jesus is asking about this clarification because it's revealing that there is more to the Messiah than they had expected. Maybe you know this, but their understanding of the Messiah was incomplete. 
We know that the Messiah, that all of the Old Testament promises was not simply limited to the mold of a political or military or earthly king figure who would simply restore the earthly kingdom. From the Old Testament, we learn that he would restore much more than that. From the first glimpse in Genesis 3 when we see that he would destroy the enemy and sin all the way through the rest of it, we see that it's clear that the Messiah would be sent from God to save people from their sins and to reconcile them back into relationship with God and into his eternal kingdom. He would deliver them from a much deeper bondage than the bondage that they were facing at the time under Rome. He would deliver them from the bondage of their sin. And so Jesus' question is really not so much a question, but more a statement. It's a statement about the insufficiency of their idea of the Messiah, their understanding of the Messiah. And to clear it up, he's about to quote David himself. He says in verse 36, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. All right, we got to stop there. We got to say like, that's the setup of all setups for a quote, right? I mean, in saying that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, Jesus is prefacing what he's about to share by saying, this is divine, This is divinely inspired. Maybe David wrote these words down, but these were the words of God that David wrote as directed by the Holy Spirit and the revelation that I'm about to share with you. It's a divine revelation. And what does he say? Verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, (laughs) what does this mean? It seems kind of cryptic, no? What is Jesus saying? What was David saying? Well, to better understand this, I think that it will help for us to go back and look and see what is it that Jesus is quoting here. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. And believe it or not, this psalm is actually the most frequently quoted Old Testament scripture in all of the New Testament. And it's easy for us to see why when we really dig into it. This psalm is considered to be a cornerstone of the Christian faith. It's a messianic psalm that speaks clearly of Christ. It establishes his supremacy as king. It establishes him as the great high priest and as the Messiah. Now, the original Jewish interpretation of this psalm was more in line with their earthly limited understanding of the Messiah. They were correct in understanding the first Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, that first Lord to be associated with Yahweh, with God. But the second Lord, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, they associated that Lord with the earthly king in Israel. But then after their exile and the whole monarchy collapsed, they understood that this had to actually be about the coming Messiah. And so by the time Jesus is on the scene here teaching them, the common interpretation of that text would be that it's about the coming Messiah. And this is the interpretation uh, that Jesus uses as he addresses them 
and references it today. So essentially in this psalm and in this quote that Jesus is quoting, David is saying, Yahweh says to the anointed one. Yahweh says to his chosen one, the Messiah. And all of these titles are wrapped up in David's use of the word Lord. And David refers to God's anointed as my Lord. David says, the Lord says to my Lord, David's Lord, David's own descendant, his Lord. How many of you here have kids by show of hands? Awesome. How many of you can imagine calling your, Sid, your kid Lord, right? Like some of you are thinking here like, my kids are total punks. There is no way that I would submit to them, right? Like, they're in no way superior to you, right? Doesn't reverence work backwards? Children honor your father and mother. Parents, they honor their parents, right? Reverence works backwards. That's just how it goes. But here, David is reversing the order. He's ascribing immense worth and superiority forward to his offspring. He's calling the Messiah, his descendant, his Lord. He didn't do this on accident. David would not have communicated this way unless he was intentionally communicating the significance and the superiority of the one who would come. In this one statement, we see that the Messiah is superior to David. He's not just merely his descendant. And this likely would be where the light bulb started to go off for his listeners. The weight of what Jesus was getting at with this differentiation of son and Lord was this. To simply call the Christ the son of David is inadequate because it falls short of revealing his true identity. The Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one far surpasses David's lineage. He's not simply David's son, he's God's son. He's divine. If we have any doubt, all we have to do is go and read the rest of Psalm 110. It's amazing. It goes on to talk about how the Messiah, who by the way, sits in a place of prominence at God's right hand, it talks about how his kingdom will go forth, his eternal kingdom, and that he will reign in all the earth and all his people from all the ends of the earth will assemble as his redeemed, clothed in holy garments. He will be their high priest forever and of his rule there will be no end and his enemies will ultimately be destroyed. He is going to work righteousness and justice once for all and he will not rest or delay in this process. This is the Christ. So how can the scribes simply say he's the descendant of David? How can they say He's just an earthly king. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? 
And this is basically the question that Mark has been asking to his readers all along. And the verse goes on to say that the great throng heard him gladly. He had their attention. Perhaps it's because they knew he was saying, David, your revered king, he calls me Lord. I am the son of God. I am the great high priest forever. My kingdom rules over all. Make no mistake about it. In posing this question of whether or not the Christ is David's son or his Lord, Jesus reveals that he himself is the true Lord. Let that sink in for a second. And if Christ is Lord, the true Lord, the Lord over all, it demands a response. Not just from the people who are in the temple hearing him, but from all of humanity. From every single one of us in this room. And Jesus goes on, he finishes up his teaching in the temple uh, by really, I think, pointing out the only two possible responses to the lordship of Christ. And those two responses are this, a continued devotion to our own perceived lordship, a continued devotion to our own perceived lordship, or a total devotion to his lordship, his true lordship. I want to look at these two as we look at the rest of our passage today. And the first of the two responses, a continued devotion to our own perceived lordship, is illustrated in Jesus' observation of the scribes. Read with me, if you will, at verse 38. He says this. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Well, apparently if you're the Christ, the Messiah, you don't care who's in the audience when you decide to lay the smack down. I mean, like you can picture his disciples like, uh, does Jesus remember there's actually scribes in the audience right now? Like this is totally awkward, right? Like you can imagine the people on pins and needles as Jesus addresses the religious figures who are responsible for teaching the law as he addresses them this way, but that's just it. Jesus is pointing out that their religion has been a facade that they've hidden behind. They really have not been about God's glory, but their own. This whole idea of the greatest commandment, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, they couldn't do it. There wasn't enough heart, soul, mind, strength to love God after loving themselves. And their love for themselves is portrayed in the way that they would dress up in robes that would distinguish them as men of prominence. We see that they liked the greetings in the marketplace and it wasn't like, you know, running into somebody at Wegmans. Oh, oh, hey, Bill, how are things going over at the temple? Is that a new robe? That's nice. I love those tassels, man. Like, no. The greeting is, uh, that was a dumb joke, I know, sorry. <laughs> It went differently in my head. <laughs> uh, but you get the point. And it, 
when they would walk through marketplaces, when they would walk through uh, the streets, people were expected to stand and rise before them and honor them. And it really ended up being a power trip for them. And they loved it. They loved that kind of attention. We see that they got the VIP treatment everywhere that they went. They had the best seats in the synagogues. Uh, They had the best uh, seats, the seats of honor at the feasts. We also see they weren't afraid to take advantage of vulnerable people. We see that they devoured widows' houses uh, for their own benefit. And their prayers, their religion, it was all for pretense. It was a show. Their life was all about them. Their life was all about their own prominence. Their life was all about their power their authority, their own perceived lordship. They pretended to be devoted to Yahweh, but in the end, they were really devoted to themselves. And we could easily agree, right, that we should be aware of individuals like this, right? But I think that so often when we read warnings against Pharisees and scribes and people like that, we tend to turn them into caricatures, don't we? We tend to make a clear distinction between us and them. It's easy to do, right? Like how many of us do walk around in long robes? We don't, right? Or how many many of us really like to be greeted when we're in Wegmans, right? Like, attention Wegman shoppers, Nate Maxfield's in aisle 15A. He's making his way to produce. Would you please stand and greet him? And as always, thank you for shopping at Wegmans. That was a little better, I don't know. (laughs) But really, how many of us try to avoid being seen when we're going grocery shopping, right? Like if we run into somebody we know, they're totally messing with our grocery shopping efficiency groove, right? Like we want to get in and out. Um, Not many of us, I think, struggle with the best seats at the place of worship. I see a few people in the front row. But let's be real, most of us are Baptists here. We know... Where it's at is in the back, and I see more people back there. And uh, perhaps maybe that's a struggle for these people, the best place to sit and the place of worship. So if you're having any one of them over for a feast after church, maybe don't give them the place of honor. Maybe make them sit at the kids' table so you're not causing them to stumble. But, but right, like, so we see this example of the scribes, and we're quick to label them as caricatures, as not us. But what happens when we do that is we dismiss an opportunity to examine our own hearts. How have all of us in this room been devoted to our own perceived lordship? Our own perceived autonomy? Maybe you're here today and you've never embraced Christ as Lord. You've never considered his claims of lordship you have no regard for it or maybe you've heard his claims you've considered his lordship and in the end you'd say he's a great guy he was a good teacher maybe a prophet but to say that he's lord like i'm not going to go that far that feels like a bit of a stretch for me But know that if Christ is Lord, and Scripture says that he is, his fulfillment of the law and the prophecies say that he is, his sinless life 
here on earth says that he is. The claims he made, like I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the only way to the Father. I can forgive your sin. Those claims say that he is Lord. His resurrection, his ascension into heaven, it says that he's Lord. And if Christ is Lord, our rejection of him is Lord, or our lack of regard for him as Lord will not change the fact that he is indeed Lord. What it will do, however, is cause us to assume a prominent position above him to say for ourselves whether or not he is. It's an indirect yet very powerful promotion of our own self and a blatant rejection of his lordship. It reeks of the same essence of the posture of both Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't it? When they ignored God and relied on their own reason and will. To disregard or to reject Christ's lordship is simply to assume and to promote our own perceived lordship. We can't escape it. I assume that most of us in this room have already embraced Christ as Lord. We've trusted him for our salvation from sin and our reconciliation to the Father, but we too have the tendency to put limits on how far we're willing to let the lordship of Christ go into our life, don't we? There is a battle going on for your devotion. And any time that we willfully choose to disobey God and act or live in a way that is contrary to his will or his desire for us, it's an exercise of the same perceived lordship. That's our posture in those moments. We might say that he's lord over our life, but is he lord over our finances? Have we been managing our money like it's his or like it's ours? Have we robbed God of his own resources by assuming our money is ours to spend however we want? It's mine, I earned it, I can spend it however I want. If I haven't done what you've commanded me to do with it, no big deal, it's mine. Does his lordship extend there in your life? We may say that he's lord over our life, but is he lord over our sexuality? Have we formed our thoughts about sexuality and what's right or what's wrong or what's permissible from the one who designed sex and set its purpose and its parameters? Or do our ideas about that stuff look more like the culture's ideas? Have we consulted with Christ as Lord when we lock ourselves in our room to look at pornography or engage in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage? Whose lordship are we submitting to in those moments? Does the lordship of Christ extend beyond closed doors 
in your life? What about your career, your possessions, your responsibilities? Have you been driven to promote your own autonomy, your own prominence and power through these things? Have you drawn a sense of security and self-worth from them? Have we gone through the motions of our faith like a show while really we're just devoted to our own lordship, our own autonomy? Anybody feel the tension of that? Christ goes on to illustrate a second posture. A total devotion to Christ's true lordship. And this second response we see depicted in the case of the poor widow. Read with me verses 41 through 44. Here's what it says. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all had contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Notice that the warning against the scribes was a public lesson, right? Jesus said it to all the people that had gathered. But now the lesson that we read here is something that he wants to point out specifically to anybody who would call themselves his follower, right? His disciples. It says that he called his disciples to him. So it's like he's saying there's direct implications here for you guys. If you're going to be my disciples, I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to point out. And what does he point out? What distinguishes this poor widow from those putting in large sums? What makes her offering significant and worth teaching about to the disciples? Well, we see that the rich and those putting in large sums gave out of their abundance, right? They could spare what they were putting in. They brought it to the table, right? This was being done in plain sight and so I'm sure that there was the tendency that because people could clearly observe people putting money into the offering box that there was a tendency for them to do it as a show. It was a way to display their prominence, their affluence, their, their wealth. But the widow had nothing to show for herself. I mean, think about it. All these people putting in large sums where everybody can see it happening and all she has are these two copper coins. But her life was marked by a devotion to another's lordship, not her own. Out of her poverty, she gave everything that she had. This was the working of God in her life and it showed in the offering that she gave, she knew her own poverty. She knew it. She was acquainted with it. She was probably really feeling it in that moment. And she willingly gave all that she had. It's symbolic of her giving over her whole life in devotion to God. 
hear this. A disciple is not blind to their own poverty. A disciple knows that apart from Christ, they are spiritually bankrupt. A disciple knows that apart from the intervention of God in their life, they would never embrace Christ as Lord. They would never know the salvation that he offers. And if we haven't embraced these truths, we have not yet fully embraced the gospel. A true disciple knows they have nothing to bring to the table. They know that only Jesus is worthy of being called Lord. And when they recognize that God in Christ brought everything to the table, they gladly offer their lives and worship to him. It is not a means to their salvation. This widow did not just purchase her salvation by putting in two small copper coins. It was a response to what God had already done. And when they recognize, when a disciple recognized the lordship of Christ, they heed his call, which was the same call that Jesus gave to the disciples at the beginning of Mark's narrative. Come, follow me. The widow's giving of all that she had is a true fulfillment of the call of discipleship, to follow Jesus by losing one's, all, one's life. She gave all that she had, everything that she had to live on. Both of these responses, a continued devotion to our own perceived lordship or a total devotion to Christ's lordship, they both come at a great cost. Make no mistake about it, but there's only one that comes with a reward. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will what? He'll find it, right? So if we seek to preserve our own life, our own autonomy, our own perceived lordship in the very end, we're gonna lose it all. The cost of our rejection of Christ is eternal condemnation and those who reject the true Lord are not welcomed into his kingdom, but are instead the object of his wrath and his justice. On the other hand, whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. The cost to being devoted to Christ's lordship is our very lives. All that we are, all that we have, but when we really contemplate what Christ did, it's hard to imagine a follower of him responding to all that he's done in any other way. And the promise that they receive, it's true life in Christ. It's certainly worth noting here that Jesus isn't some tyrant, right? He's not beating people over the head with the idea of his lordship. He doesn't demand that they follow him, right? We don't see that language, but instead, people are invited. There's a difference. They're invited 
to follow him. And while the cost of following him, all that we are, all that we have is indeed, it's great, it's very great, it pales in comparison to the price that he himself paid to reconcile us back to the Father. Jesus, the Christ, God's chosen one, the anointed one, our Messiah. He came to destroy the power of sin and darkness and to save his people from the bondage of their sin and to restore them to his eternal kingdom as promised. But it required his perfect life on earth because we couldn't do it. It required his death on our behalf because we deserved to die. And it required his resurrection. The Bible tells us that there's no greater display, that the Father sent his Son and that his Son willingly laid down his life for us also that we could be saved. This is the restoration that Israel needed. This is the restoration that we needed and that only the Messiah, the Christ, could bring about, could accomplish, could provide. So for those of us here who have never considered, regarded, or trusted Christ's Lordship, will you embrace him as Lord today? Will you recognize your own poverty and know that he has paid your debt in full and heed his invitation to come? For those who have already embraced him as Lord, in recognition that there is a battle going on for your own devotion, will you examine yourself to see what borders you've put up to his lordship in your life? Where are the closed doors to his lordship in your life? He gladly gave his life for you in response, will you gladly surrender yours for him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for what we've just learned together and read together in your word. We thank you, God, for the clarity with which we are able to see that Christ is in fact the true Lord. God, maybe there's somebody here considering Christ's lordship for the first time and I ask God that you would, by your word and by your spirit, reveal your son to them. Cause them, God, to embrace him. For those of us, God, who have already embraced him, God, we thank you for that miracle in our lives because we could not work that in our own power. It is a sign of your intervention and your work in our lives. Yet, God, we're all too familiar with how prone we are to push back against the lordship of your son and to preserve our own way, our own autonomy, our own perceived Lordship. I ask, Father, that you, by a work of your Spirit, 
would continue to put those urges to rest in us, continue to cause us to embrace Christ and his lordship more fully each day as you complete the work that you have started and have promised to complete in each of your people. We pray this in his name. Amen.